your way back to your seat and we're going to jump in. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so we better get at it. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. Just so you know, it's not, re- it's not a requirement that I preach every time we're at FHS. It's just worked out that way. But here we are again. So John chapter 1, uh, we're going to read the first 18 verses. And uh, because of the season that we're in on the calendar, but also uh, because of the season that we're in as a church, uh, I thought it would be beneficial for us in our time this morning to look at, at John's phrase, uh, that we hear a lot this this time of year, and it's the Word became flesh. And uh, so we'll try to unpack that a bit and see what it means for us today. Uh, so I've titled the message, How to Live When Your Mind's Been Blown by Christmas. Uh, you could call it the implications of the incarnation. If you're more on that kind of vibe, uh, you can see what kind of vibe I'm on um, with that. It's a little dark, but that's what it says up there. And so, how to live when your mind's been blown by Christmas. I'll leave it up to you what you write in your notes for the title. Um, But God is ready and willing to help us this morning to understand and apply His Word. And uh, so let's let's ask Him to do just that. And then uh, then I'll read uh, the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. And so God, we're so thankful for what You've done already. And we're so thankful for the privilege it is to worship You, the privilege it is to hear from You. And uh, we just pray now as we come to Your Word uh, that Your Spirit would be at work in us, uh, that Your Spirit would help us to first even understand Your Word. We recognize our complete dependence on You. Uh, We recognize our weakness to uh, preach Your Word. We recognize our weakness to receive Your Word. And so we need Your Spirit's help. And we need Your Spirit's help to understand We need Your Spirit's help to apply. And uh, Father, we just pray that You would do a great work in us. We don't want to leave the same people as we came. And so we pray that You would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand this morning what You want to say to us through Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, John chapter 1 and a familiar uh, section of Scripture in the first 18 verses. It says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me, because He was before Me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. All right, so I think this Christmas uh, will probably be the greatest Christmas of my life. Um, no other Christmas season in my 35 years of existing uh, will come close to this Christmas. Not the Christmas where I got a talk boy as featured in Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Uh, that was a pretty amazing Christmas. Does anyone know what a talk boy is? No clue. No clue? Oh, I'm alone. That's not what you hope for in, in things. It was awesome. You can look it up. It's pretty cool. Um, not the Christmas where I had my first drink of Coca-Cola at Mr. Mitten's house, and I drank so much I threw up. That was a pretty good Christmas. My parents were socializing. They lost track of me, and I, boys, I drank a lot of Coca-Cola that Christmas. What magical stuff that was. I know. I was like eight, just to be clear. It wasn't like I was 18. I've had some pretty good Christmases, but I think this one will be the best uh, because uh, this Christmas, my son and I are going to sit down and watch The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So he's been, uh, he's been for the last couple of months reading with the joy set before him of watching the movies over the Christmas break. And uh, if he finishes the books, and he's pretty well, he's about halfway there. So we'll watch whatever he's, he's done. And uh, I've kind of been, not to exaggerate it, but I've kind of been dreaming about this since the day I held him in my arms 11 years ago. <laughs> so I love The Lord of the Rings. I love how big the story is. I love how uh, fantastic the characters are. Now, just to be clear, it's not like I know Elvish or anything, right? And I don't have like a replica sword of Aragorn hanging on my bedroom <laughs> wall. So if you know Elvish, please don't leave and please stay. And we can still be friends. But I'm just saying that I enjoy them. And the stories, they capture my imagination. And you read them and you're just like, man, how did Tolkien think all this up? It's so in-depth and so huge. What kind of imagination did he have? And the Lord of the Rings are great, and I think uh, we all love a fantastic story, whether you are a Lord of the Rings fan or not. Uh, but when we come to the Christmas story, uh, we see something even more amazing, and I think we're just so familiar with it, we just kind of lose just how mind-boggling it is. And that's already been touched on with what Barb shared and with what John shared uh, but when we come to the Christmas story, we see something even more amazing. We see something even more mind-boggling, uh, something even more fantastic. And uh, J.I. Packer said, the, real, the really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man. It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian Revelation lie, the Word 
became flesh. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the Incarnation. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. I'm also fighting the cold that's going around, so you'll just have to bear with me. So when you hear the word incarnation, it's, a, it's not an overly common word that we use in, in regular everyday sentences, but it's a, it's a theological word that's used uh, to explain how the second person of the Trinity entered human history in the flesh as the God-man, Jesus Christ. And incarnation is from the Latin meaning becoming flesh. And now most of us don't know Latin, I don't think. I was way off on Talkboy, so maybe... <laughs> There's a lot of you who know Latin, but uh, it's a bit like this. In October, uh, one of the greatest blessings we received in our family was our our child, Caden, and uh, that was a great blessing. And a close second was Jerusha Borden's chili, okay? And uh, (laughs) it was, no, she's not here, and I can get away with a lot of stuff. There's Jerusha. Karen's not here, and so... uh, What's that? (laughs) Everything's on the internet. But Jerusha's chili was amazing because it was, as all chili should be, chili con carne, which means chili with meat, right? Chili without meat is just beans in a bowl, okay? And so it was chili con carne, uh, chili with meat, and the, the word con carne means with meat. And so you think of the word carnivore, right? And so... Uh, Here we see that the incarnation uh, is God becoming flesh. God concarn, not to be, uh, you know, frivolous with our words, but crass. There we go. But I think that helps us, right? Because not many of us know, know Latin. So the next time you have chili with meat, let your heart rise up in thanksgiving for God sending Jesus in the flesh, right? Chili concarn. And the passage in the Bible... Uh, that gives us the clearest expression of this truth is here in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so my aim, kind of my goal this morning, is to help us see what the Incarnation is and what it means for us today. And so let's start by taking the dive and trying our best to wrap our heads around this truth that Packer calls the supreme mystery associated with the gospel. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. And so really our goal this morning isn't to come out the other end with more answers, uh, but our goal this morning is to come out with more awe. Our goal this morning is to come out with more awe. And it's very interesting that John brought that word during worship because it's right here in my notes. I wrote it this week. Our goal this morning is to come out with more awe, not necessarily more answers. So to tackle such a huge truth, we're just going to look at those four words in John 1.14. The word became flesh. All right, so let's start with the first two. The word. 
and then we'll just work our way through. So the Word. We see in John 1, 1 that John not only refers to Jesus as God, but he also refers to Him as the Word. And then he repeats that title in verse 14. The Word became flesh. Now, the, the Word as a, as a title is a bit strange to us, especially since it's not the 90s and we don't use Word very much. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I just had Word word to the Father above any other pump, pump, pump it up. Yeah, Joe's, al- Joe's almost on his feet, so we'll, we'll, move on. we'll move on from that. But John's readers would have had, uh, wouldn't have had as much difficulty as us in recognizing the term that John uses for Jesus. Uh, G- Jews would have seen the connection back to the Old Testament, to the powerful, creative Word of God. Uh, to the Hebrew people, God's Word was the presence and action of God breaking into human history with power and authority. God's Word was synonymous with His action. Uh, in the Old Testament, we read of His Word bringing things into existence and His Word being sent out to accomplish His purposes. In fact, Jews of- often substituted God for the Word of God out of reverence for His name. So instead of saying, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, they would say to meet the Word of God. And so the, the Hebrew people would have had a good understanding of what John was getting at when he said the Word became flesh. On the other hand, in Greek thinking, the Word referred to the organizing or unifying principle of the universe, to the thing that held the universe together and allowed it to make sense. And so when John says the Word, he's kind of drawing a line from Hebrew theology and Greek philosophy, and saying that the destination of both of those lines is Jesus Christ. John begins with the statement that both Jew and Greek would have agreed upon, that before the creation of the world, before time itself, the Word existed eternally. And then he gut punches both groups by saying that the Word was with the one and only God and was in fact God Himself. And so this Word isn't just some invisible force, but is a person, Jesus Christ. John identifies Jesus as both the powerful, creative Word of God and the unifying, organizing force in the universe. And so in these opening lines of John 1, he's slamming that Hebrew theology, Greek philosophy, he's slamming them together at the feet of Jesus Christ. And so how scandalous then to both groups when John says that this Word, God Himself, became flesh. And so it's like he's saying, hey, Jewish theologian, Psalm 33.6, by the Word of the Lord the heavens were made. He was born as a vir- from a virgin in the city of Bethlehem. And hey, Greek philosopher, this artistic fire this universal principle which animates and rules the world. He walked this earth. He came as Jesus of Nazareth. So do you see what kind of a staggering claim this is that John opens up his Gospel with? The Word became flesh. We're not talking about just a good man. We're not talking about a great teacher, a king, a prophet, a sage. Christmas is about the Word. It's about the Word. 
the Son of God, who was with God and is in fact God Himself, the author of all light. He did not only create light and separate it from darkness, He Himself was the light that came into the world. He did not merely create life, He Himself was the life that came into the world. He was the one who knit Mary together in her mother's womb. He was the one who held the stars in place over the shepherds in the night sky. And if Mary and Joseph rode a donkey to Bethlehem, he was the one who thought up the idea of a donkey. He's the eternal, self-existent, all-powerful Word, the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only wise God, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power, the one the angels bow down and worship, the one who is supreme over all things. We sing Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. And so we need to see that right off the get-go. This is the Word. The Word. And so how mind-boggling it is that John states the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. The Word became flesh. And so it's just like, wait a second here, John boy. You mean that that Word, that glorious, eternal, all-powerful Word became flesh. Yes, the Word became flesh. And most of us have heard it so much. I think we just need to take just a second to let it sink in and roll it over in your mind a bit. That the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. At the Incarnation, the Eternal Word, God the Son, entered into His creation as a human being. God became a human and lived like a human and did human things. God became a first century Jew. God grew up in Nazareth. Became doesn't mean that He ceased to be God. In becoming man, the Son did not give up His divine nature. It means that He became a man by taking on human nature in addition to His divine nature. Augustine said, Christ added to Himself which He was not. He did not lose what He was. And so we say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is 200%, if you will. So He's not a half man, half God. He's not uh, like some Jekyll and Hyde where He switches and switches back and forth, right? When the disciples needed food, they didn't hand the loaves and bread to this you know, simple Jewish rabbi and then He lifts the bread up and says, Shazam! And turns into a super Messiah and then He does His miracles and then He switches back to a Jewish rabbi. He's fully God and fully man. Colossians 2.9 says, In Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
it's a brain buster of Christmas, right? Fully God and fully man. He's 200%. It's hard to wrap your head around, isn't it? Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus, although fully equal with God, he did not see that as something uh, to keep in his grip. Paul talks of Jesus emptying himself, uh, but the emptying isn't of his, his attributes or his identity. Uh, the emptying of making himself nothing is in regards to his status and his privilege. Uh, theologians would say Jesus laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. I would say he didn't pull the parachute. That would be the way I would think about it. But uh, this can seem hard to wrap our heads around, and it is. Uh, but if you have small kids, I think especially small boys, uh, you already have a pretty good grasp on what this means when Paul says that he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he laid it aside. You already have a pretty good idea. In fact, I would say that, is Santiago here? There he is. He's gone. Oh, that's all right. But Santiago probably has the greatest understanding of the incarnation of anybody in our church, I think. Uh, ben would probably be there with Luke as well, uh, a few others. But you'll see what I mean in a second. So when you have a small, what should we call Luke, active? <laughs> enthusiastic. If you have a small, enthusiastic boy, he likes to wrestle, okay? I'm no prophet, but I would imagine that there's a lot of wrestling in Santiago's house. Uh, there would be a lot of wrestling in Ben's house as well. And so what happens is that the boys jump on their dad. They're rolling around, picking him up. There's punches, there's kicks, there's all this going on, right? And uh, in that moment, we'll use Ben. Ben is emptying himself, right? He is laying aside the power that he has, uh, because if he didn't, for obvious reasons, uh, it would not be a very fair fight, right? So in about five seconds, Ben could beat Luke in a wrestling match. But that's not what happens, is it? Ben lays that aside. Uh, he he, he kind of condescends. He comes down to Luke's level, and he relates with him there. The power is still there. The ability is still there, but he doesn't count that as something to be grasped. Instead, he lays it aside so that he can come down to Luke's level and wrestle with him. Does that make sense? And so that's kind of what Paul's saying in Philippians 2. Jesus is still fully God, but he doesn't count that as something he wants to grab hold of. He lays it aside, and he comes down to us, and he relates with us. Okay? So that's what Paul is saying the Son of God did in becoming Jesus. So, the Word became. And the final word in John's little phrase is that the Word became flesh. Flesh. And flesh isn't merely a reference to the human body, uh, but the entirety of what makes up a human being. Human being. Body, mind, emotions, and will. And Hebrews 2.17 and 4.15 teach us that to save human beings, Jesus had to be made like us in every respect except without sin. In the incarnation, the Son of God did not only become like man, He actually became a true man. 
he actually became a true man. He had a human body. Jesus was born of a human woman, which means that the Word, the Son of God, stretched and pushed against the walls of Mary's womb. That God was covered in amniotic fluid. And it can be hard for us to think of Jesus in this way. We kind of have a tendency to clean things up, uh, to kind of, you know, clean it up a bit and strip Jesus a bit of his humanity. But listen, Jesus filled his diaper. It's just, right? We, we kind of keep everything up here, and I think we lose a bit of what it means that the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. Mary and Joseph dealt with the grossness of waiting for that stump out of an umbilical cord to turn into a sweet belly button, right? It's crazy to think about, but that's what Jesus did. He became a baby. The Son of God became a helpless baby. And we sing lyrics like the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, false. He cried, and he cried, and he cried. And he cried in the morning, and he cried at lunch, and he cried at 3 a.m., and Mary's like, I trekked all the way from Nazareth, and you can't walk him around for 10 minutes so I can get some sleep, right? (laughs) Jesus was a baby. The little Lord Jesus, a bit gassy he is, isn't a great line (laughs) for a song. I get that. I understand. But that's the reality of the situation, right? Real life, real action. Luke tells us as a boy that Jesus grew in stature and became strong. After 40 days of fasting, he was hungry. John 4, after a long journey, he sits down by the well because he's tired. During his crucifixion, he's too weak to carry his own cross. On the cross, he gets thirsty, cries out with a loud voice because of the pain that he's going through. Jesus had a human body. He had a human body. Jesus had a human mind. Luke tells us that Jesus increased in wisdom, which means he went through the same learning process that all children do. He learned how to read, to write, how to speak. Think about it. The one who spoke the universe into existence, sitting at Mary's feet, learning how to say words. He learned how to say new words, which in our house provides some of the greatest amusement. For a whole week, one of my daughters, instead of saying gumballs, said bum galls. <laughs> it was hilarious. But Jesus went through that as well. Judah has begun randomly yelling out poophead for no reason at all. Right? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But Jesus would have gone through these things as well. The struggle of learning. The struggle of fumbling over your words and and forming words. Jesus went through that as a child. The one in Genesis 1 who said, planets and planets were made. The one who said, donkeys and donkeys were made, is now learning how to speak. Do we see that? Do we see just how mind-blowing it is? 
Jesus had human emotions. He marveled at the faith of the centurion. He wept at the death of Lazarus. He says in the garden that his soul is sorrowful even to death. And the Bible says that he was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. Jesus was fully human. He was born of a woman. He had brothers and sisters, was racially Jewish, had male and female friends that he loved, loved hanging out with children, went to parties, loved his mom, told jokes. He had his feelings hurt. He yelled when he banged his thumb with a hammer. As a teenager, he experienced his voice cracking at the worst of times. Axe deodorant wasn't readily available then, so he had B.O. after a long day of work. His feet grew tired. By all outward appearances, he was just a regular guy. Isaiah 53.2 says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He blended in. If all the boys were out on the street in Nazareth playing kickball, nobody was standing back saying, that one's not from around here. He blended in. Jesus, while being fully God, is fully man. And it's important to say is fully man because Jesus will be God and man forever. He did not give up His human nature when He returned to heaven. We read that after His resurrection, He had flesh and bones and ate food and ascended into heaven in the same glorified body and we're promised that He will return in exactly the same way. He wasn't just temporarily a man. He was permanently united God and man. The Word became flesh. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. The one who appeared to Isaiah sitting upon a throne high and lifted up in the train of his robe filled the temple and the angelic being sang out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory swaddled in strips of cloth and being laid in a feeding trough. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold Him come, offspring of the favored one, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. That's the staggering claim of Christmas. That the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. That God became man. And it's a mystery, and it's a paradox, and we can't fully explain it, and we can't understand it in this age, perhaps not even in the age to come. But just because we can't explain it doesn't mean that we can't respond to it. And so what do we do about it? What does the Incarnation mean for us today? If you, like me, have had Christmas blow your mind as you look into this more and more, and you do realize it's true that the more you look at it, the more staggering it gets, then how do we live in light of that? How do we live in light of the Incarnation? All right? So I've got five things I want us to think about of how we live in light of the Incarnation. Am I alone, like in the talk boy, or does this blow your mind as well? Okay. 
How's that? Just not with the talk boy. That's fine. As the more I looked at it this week, it was, I just can't, kept coming back to that. I, I don't know that we get more answers and that we get it all detailed, figured out, but I think we do grow in awe that the Word became flesh. And you're like, well, how, but, but how, but what? Uh, and you just got to worship. <laughs> you just got to worship. You just got to let your heart rise in awe of who God is and what He has done for us in Jesus. So how do we live in light of it? First, it means that we can live as children of God. Why did the Word become flesh? According to John in verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We can live as children of God. Children of God. When we look at that baby in the manger, we should think of the spiritual birth that Jesus, the Son of God, made possible for us by becoming a human being and by dying in our place. Jesus explained to Nicodemus in John 3 that this spiritual birth is absolutely necessary for us. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And it's not a natural birth, it's a supernatural birth, a spiritual renewal, a transformation that can only be the work of God in someone's life. When John talks about the grace upon grace that we receive from the fullness of Christ, it's much more than just having sins forgiven. He makes us new. There's a transformation that is so powerful and distinct that Jesus points us to the analogy of a birth. I've been in the room six times now for a birth, and I'll tell you, there's things going on that I can't perceive. There's a lot going on that I don't understand. There's forces at work that I can't see as I stay up by Karen's head so that I don't pass out, right? There's a lot going on. But suddenly, there's a new person in the room. Suddenly, there's a new person in the room. And that's what Jesus wants to, us to think about when someone comes to Christ. It's much more than just, here's the record of my sins, and Jesus has crossed them out, and I'm forgiven. He says, no, you're a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And if we're honest, that's just as hard to wrap our heads around as Jesus being fully God and fully man. I don't look any different. I might feel a bit different. Jesus says, when you come to me, you're a new creation. I've made you something new. And it's good to study, and it's good to think things through, but the bottom line is, we're sinners and we're in need of a Savior. And in the end, nothing else really matters. And so I would encourage you, don't wait to understand the Incarnation. Don't wait to have all the fine details of the cross or any other spiritual truth all figured out before you come to Christ. Before you put your trust in Jesus. If you know you're a sinner, 
if you know that you need a Savior this morning, then just do what John says in John 1, 12. Receive Him, believe in His name, and He'll make you a child of God. What does the incarnation mean for us today? We can become children of God. We can become children of God. Second, it means that we can humbly cross barriers to bring the gospel to people not like us. And so what's amazing, the more I thought about this, what's amazing about the incarnation is not only that Jesus came to, to earth to live as a man, but who He came to live it with. Who he, who he lived that life with. When Jesus began His ministry, He didn't just set up shop in the temple. Separated from the people. He could have, and He could have been completely justified in doing that. He's God after all. But He didn't. He walks among the common folk of the day. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. He spoke to prostitutes and adulterers. He touched lepers. He let little children up on His knee. He had conversations with even the despised Samaritans. And in John 20, Jesus said to His disciples, as the Father has sent Me, so I am sending you. And then He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And so just as Jesus left heaven and entered into culture to enter into the mess of humanity, He calls His church to do the same. And so we're not merely to remain in community with people of our own gender, race, age, income level, nationality, and the like. Instead, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're to go out and live holy lives in an unholy world so that we can see more and more people come into relationship with our holy God. John says in verse 9 that Jesus is the true light which gives light to everyone. And when the angels appeared to the shepherds, they said that it was good news of great joy that will be for all people. That, it was, that Jesus' coming was good news of great joy that will be for all people. Now, I don't know Greek. We can confirm with Tyler after, but I'm pretty sure that when it says all people, what it actually means there is all people. It means everyone. It means everyone. It means that there is no one excluded in your family, in your community, in your city, in your nation, in the whole world. No one who has ever lived, is living, or will live who is excluded from the good news of great joy of the gospel. And it's the calling of the church to be the messengers of that good news. We're the angelic choir now. We're the angelic choir saying there's good news of great joy that is for all the people. And so we need to be willing to get uncomfortable, to get stretched, to see those not like us know Jesus. And I tell you what, it has very little to do with geography. We could plunk a church down right in the middle of a part of the city in desperate need, but if we just bunker down, close the doors, set up shop, and huddle up, what's the point? 
the glory of Jesus coming to earth isn't just that He came and grabbed a camp chair and sat up in the Holy of Holies and just said, you know what, I'm just separating myself from them. I'm here. You know, I'm here. But uh, I'm just going to keep my distance and I'm going to sit here in the Holy of Holies and uh, we can put a witty sign out front that will get people's attention and I'll have my phone and I'll share a link of a worship song every once in a while so that people know what's up. Um, and, you know, I'll see the high priest once a year, so there's that. It's not like I'm completely cut off. The glory of Jesus is that He came. And that He was out touching lepers and talking to the Samaritans and bringing the good news of great joy for all people. The glory of the Incarnation is not just that Jesus came and lived, but how He lived His life here on earth. So I'd say there's no magic in us moving to the Topmar building, to 140 Clark Street. There's no magic in that. And sure, closeness in location can help us reach people better, but only if it's accompanied by the same willingness to see in Jesus to cross barriers relationally. A move in geography is nothing if our hearts are not moved and empowered to see people embrace the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. The Incarnation enables us to cross barriers to see the Gospel come to all people. And so who's behind a barrier for you? It could be someone that looks and acts very different from you. It could be someone very close. It could be a brother or an uncle that you've just let the lie sit in that it's good news of great joy for all people except them. The Incarnation shows us that it's for everyone. Third, the Incarnation means that we can seek a life of self-denial. Now, self-denial, I know, is not a popular topic in our culture, culture. Even hearing me mention it now, nobody's like, finally, we've got to the self-denial point. I was so excited for that. But when Jesus became incarnate, He voluntarily denied Himself the privileges of being God and the glories of heaven in order to be mocked, scorned, spit upon, ridiculed, and eventually give Himself up even to death as a willing sacrifice. And 2 Corinthians 9 talks of Jesus giving up the riches of heaven to become poor for our sake so that we through His poverty might become rich. And in doing this, He meets all the demands of His holiness that we could ever meet. And so we could give up all that we have, live a life of rigorous self-denial. It still wouldn't save us. John has reminded us that salvation doesn't come by the will of the flesh. Salvation doesn't come by the will of man. But when we receive God's grace for salvation, that grace empowers us then to live with the mind of Christ. Like Paul says in Philippians 2, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility we can count others more significant than yourselves. 
looking not only to our own interests, but also the interests of others. And so the incarnation shows us that we can live a life of self-denial. Fourth, we can live a life free from trying to impress with appearances. Our culture loves a show. We're obsessed with external beauty. But the incarnate Christ came, chose to come as someone with no external beauty. There was nothing in Him that we should desire Him. He's the most glorious person who has ever lived, and yet we did not recognize His glory. And so the glory of Jesus wasn't in a chiseled physique or you know, perfectly straight and shiny teeth and nice feathered hair and a nicely trimmed beard like so many of the paintings have Him. He didn't have the million dollar smile and the designer tunic, but what He had was an anointing of the Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed. And so the incarnation means that we can be free from trying to impress with external appearances. We don't need the flash and the splash and the lights and the smoke. Our goal is to point people to the glory of Jesus. Our goal is to point people to the glory of Jesus. Our goal is to bear witness to the light. So nobody has ever said, you know, when I saw how beautifully dressed those people were, I just repented of my sin and gave my life to Jesus. Nobody has ever said, when I walked in that beautifully adorned building, uh, my heart was laid bare before God and I came to Christ. Right? The incarnation reminds us that our lives do not need to be impressive in the world's eyes to count in God's kingdom. That our ministries can have no beauty that the world would be drawn to and yet be glorious in the eyes of God. That's the beauty of the incarnation. We can be free from trying to impress with external appearances. Amy Carmichael, who, who gave her life to serve the orphans in India, she wrote a poem called If, and one of the lines in it is, if I love to be loved more than I love, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. If I love to be loved more than to love, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. Last but not least, the incarnation means that God is for us. If you have doubts that God is for you this morning, you can look to the manger. Because if God is so for you that He stepped out of heaven and stepped into history by becoming a helpless baby in order that He might live a humble and righteous life to then go to the cross and die for our sin. If God was so for you that He did that, then how can it be that He's not for you today? How can it be that He's not for you today? And not to belittle the suffering you might be in, the obstacles you might be facing, 
without downplaying the trials in your life in any way. But where do they stack up next to the incarnation? Where do they stack up next to the Word becoming flesh for your sake? What weight do they have next to God becoming man for you? The grace of God in the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus eclipses our sin. It eclipses the trials we might be in. It eclipses the suffering we might be going through. No matter what circumstance we might be in, it doesn't hold a candle to the fact that God became flesh for us. The Word became flesh for us. He is for us. He is for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. He gave Him up. He gave Him up from His side in heaven to come to earth. He gave Him up on the cross. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all how will he not also then with him graciously give us all things? The incarnation shows us that we can become children of God. That God is for us. Whew. Man. Let's pray.